morning again. If you would please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 23. Acts 23 as we continue. This week, actor, legendary actor, Sylvester Stallone, requested that uh, from President Trump that he would pardon the deceased legendary boxer Jack Johnson, who had been convicted of a federal crime uh, long, long ago. And it got me thinking about the presidential pardon that our Constitution, Article 2, Section 2, I didn't have that memorized, I looked it up, but it, uh, it gives the president the power to pardon a citizen of a federal crime and then never to be charged with that crime again. And so as I was preparing for the sermon, I thought about that and thought about the title of this week's sermon, Innocent. Just that reminder that those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who have been saved by his grace, have been pardoned all of our sin, all of our guilt by the righteous king of the universe. It's as if we never sinned. Just how amazing the righteousness that we have from Christ is. It's as if we've never sinned. That's why we're here today. That's why we're worshiping. That's why we're praising him. Uh, as a congregation, it's a beautiful thing. And that, that brings me uh, to the, the title of today's sermon, Innocent. The great theological truth that those of us in Christ are beyond judgment because of God's great grace. We are innocent. Now, last week, we uh, were in chapters 21 and 22. We began this last mini-series, uh, Free Indeed, this last panel, as we uh, will see Paul in prison this entire time, and yet the reality is he is free. He is more free than ever, and so are we as his children. And so uh, there's a few things that connect last week's passage to this, this week's passage. First off, he's still in Jerusalem. So we saw that last week. He was arrested in Jerusalem. Uh, he is still testifying to the Jews as God told him and let him know that would be happening at the end of the third journey. Also we, also, we saw him rescued last week twice from the Jewish mob who was ready to kill him. We will see that again today. We'll see him rescued a couple more times by the murderous Jewish uh, enemies, if you will. And then the other thing that we saw was we met the Tribune, this man who was in charge, the military leader in charge of the cohort of a 1,000 troops in Jerusalem. And we see him on a quest. He is an investigator. And a pretty good one. His desire, we saw it last week twice, we'll see it again today. His desire is simply to find out why the Jews are so angry with Paul that they would want to kill him. He tried twice last week to no avail. He, he tried to ask the mob, you might remember, and half of the mob didn't even know why they were there, so he couldn't learn anything from them. It was a waste of time. And then he let Paul speak on the steps of the barracks. Uh, That's where he shared the gospel with the Jews. He thought... Probably maybe I could learn from Paul's speech what's going on. That didn't work. And then today, uh, in the transition passage between last week and this week, if you look with me at the end of chapter 22, verse 24, it says the tribune ordered him, Paul, to be brought back into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him. So he's thinking basically, hey, I can't find out the truth these ways. I'll beat it out of them. Right, The good old flogging, uh, much like what Jesus endured, it, it kills some prisoners. Inside the fortress, there would have been a stone uh, pavement, think uh, Aslan and Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, called the Gabbatha. 
And they would have tied all four limbs down, getting ready to whip him with leather strips containing glass, shards of glass and bone. And there we see Paul play the Roman citizen card. God delivers him from that. They find out he's a Roman citizen, and now they go from seeing him as a prisoner to them now being responsible to protect him as a Roman citizen. So that's what's changed in between last week and this week. So now uh, the, uh, the Tribune tries one final option. He's going to call or convene an informal meeting of the Sanhedrin to see if, uh, as Paul gives his defense before them, maybe he can figure out why they're so angry with this man, Paul. And so as I was thinking about this Tribune, he's a great investigator trying over and over it reminded me of the show Dragnet, back from the old days. I used to watch Black and White. Who know, Who remembers Dragnet, right? Yeah, there's a picture of the guys up here, Bill Gannon and Joe Friday. Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. And that's what we're going into today with the Tribune. He's trying to find out the facts of what is happening. And, and the way it's going to show, or what it's going to show us as believers, you'll see here in the big idea for today's passage. Today, Luke will repeatedly portray Paul as innocent, in order to contrast the Jews' attitude toward Christianity with that of the Roman empires. And I've told you that before. We've seen Luke indicate this. This is one of the sub-themes of the entire book of Acts. Paul or Luke is continually drawing a contrast between the Jews who were against Christianity and the Roman officials who time after time declare it a legitimate legal faith. And so we'll see that Today. So let's pray, and then we'll start looking at uh, these examples of Paul's innocence. Father, we, we do thank you again. It's, it's been a great service, a great morning already. Thank you for the time of worship we've had, and even now, this time to come. Give us a heart to pay attention, Lord, to pay attention to your word. And I pray, Spirit, that you would speak through these truths into each of our hearts, that for those who are believers, you would grow us and strengthen us and remind us of the innocence we have in Christ. And Father, if there's anyone here, which I'm sure there is, who does not know you, open their eyes, lead them to repent and believe in the gospel. We ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. All right, so the the first, we're going to begin here at the end of chapter 22, right into 23. And the first way that Luke shows us, the first example he shows us of Paul's innocence, it comes to us in Paul's defense speech before the Sanhedrin. So let's pick up at the end of, uh, actually at 2230, and then we'll read into chapter 23. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he, Paul, was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, 
and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So what an incredible account here. This is amazing. And the, the part of, the, of this defense where we see Paul, where we see his innocence come through, is this very first thing that he says. He apparently gets the floor first. And look what he says in verse 1. I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. At face value, you're thinking, why did the guy order Paul to be struck in the mouth? What did he say? Well, what he says here is actually very powerful. Paul is implying that he is he's right. He is right and he is innocent. And, and by as a Christian, he is following the true way of the God of Israel. That's how the high, the high priest understood very clearly what Paul was implying in that statement. In fact, you'll see this slide up here. It's kind of a continuity slide. I showed you this a long time ago in Acts. And uh, you'll see Christianity is what continues the path of God's chosen people going forward. Judaism actually takes a hard right and becomes a completely different religion up until this day. Today, all forms of Judaism are nothing like Old Testament Judaism. They're simply a reaction to Christianity in many ways, in many parts. And so Paul is saying this very thing with this statement. I am among the true people of God. And you'll see this quote up on the screen by John Polhill. He helps us to understand it further. He says, if Paul's life as a Christian left him in complete innocence before God, then the Sanhedrin members who did not share his commitment to Christ were the guilty partners. How powerful indeed. And so the high priest, and by the way, this man Ananias, we know some things about him because of Josephus. He was apparently the most corrupt high priest ever. He was a man full of greed. He would assassinate political enemies. This guy was a bad man. And so he also was known to have a short temper. And so we see that come out in the passage. And then look at Paul's response. Some theologians have given Paul a hard time in this passage today, saying that he sinned and how he showed such great disrespect. I don't see that. In my opinion, this is no different than Peter back in chapters 4 and 5. The Holy Spirit uh, has, has filled Paul and is speaking through Paul. And you see what he says to him. And it, it kind of makes you laugh a little bit. You whitewashed wall. That reminds you of what Jesus said about the whitewashed tombs. A little different of a metaphor. Uh, what this pictures is, imagine a wall that doesn't look like that very strong of a wall. And it could fall over at any moment, but it's covered in a thick coat of paint. And that's all that's probably holding it up. That's kind of the, the imagery of a metaphor. You may have seen a house before and jokingly said, man, the paint's the only thing holding that house up. That's what Paul's talking about here. And I see it as prophecy. I think, uh, I think Paul's prophesizing here, actually the Holy Spirit through Paul, because some years, some years later, this man Ananias, who was sympathetic to the Roman Empire, as the Jewish nationalists were rebelling against Rome's rule, he would go into hiding, and they would find him hiding in a cistern and kill him. Reminds me of Saddam Hussein. Very similar uh, type thing happening here. And you'll see this passage from uh, Matthew 10. This is Jesus talking to the disciples, to the apostles, 
And look what he says to them. He says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speaks, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. And then, of course, uh, those standing by fuss at Paul and say, hey, don't revile him. He's the high priest. Now, a lot of, a lot of ink has been spilt on, the, on uh, what you see here in verse 5. Paul says, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. What did Paul mean by that? Wasn't, wouldn't the high priest have been dressed in all his high priestly garb and stood out? Some people think Paul's eyesight was weak. Some people think Paul just didn't see who said it. Uh, some even think that Paul is being a little sarcastic here, saying something to the effect of, well, you could have fooled me. He's not acting like the high priest. So that's even a possibility. But nonetheless, Paul recants due to his love and tru- with the truth of God's word. He quotes a, a passage from Exodus, Exodus 22, I believe. And he, we see a very important principle here. He, he respects the office despite the person who holds it. So nonetheless, Paul uh, does show that. Now what's interesting, moving into verse 6, Paul uh, plays a little game here. I think what's happening here is Paul's like, all right, I've had enough of this. I'm done. I've done my job. I've testified to the Jews in Jerusalem. I'm ready to go back to my holding cell. Because he uses his incredible intellect and his perception as a former Pharisee, to know exactly how the relationship was between these two groups. The Pharisees were like the conservative evangelicals now, very legalistic, but they believed the Bible. They did have a hope in a literal bodily resurrection, that we will all be resurrected as God's children. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the theological liberals of the day. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They only accepted portions of the first five books of the Old Testament, and that was it. They cared about the law, but were anti-supernatural, denied a resurrection, had no hope. Makes you wonder why they even came to church, right? So that's what's happening here. So perceiving that, as a former Pharisee, look what Paul says. He cries out to his Pharisee brethren there, and he, he doesn't lie. He says, the hope and the resurrection of the dead is why I'm on trial. And it was true. He was there because of his belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and therefore the belief of his own bodily resurrection. And once he said that, it completely put this council at odds with one another. He completely divided them, got the focus off of himself and on each other in this life or this several-decade battle that the Sadducees and the Pharisees had. And you can, you can see it here. One of the scribes gets up and says, you know what, I think he's actually innocent. He's, he's not guilty. With that, the Sadducees go crazy. There were more Sadducees and Pharisees in the council. Uh, in fact, uh, scholars believe that the way that uh, the Tribune had the room set up, it would be like this room, Paul would be over here, and then the whole council would be over on this side. And what would have happened is some of the scribes would have walked across the room from the large group and stood with Paul, which would have just made it even worse for the Sadducees. So this room erupts, uh, craziness ensues, and you see the Tribune now for the third time rescuing Paul from their murderous grasps and taking him uh, from them back to safety. Now, a few application points for us. First and foremost, the resurrection. My friends, the resurrection and the crucifixion are the central tenets of Christianity, of the gospel. You take away one, we got nothing. And the resurrection was very important. In fact, if you do a study in the book of Acts, I believe the resurrection is mentioned three times more than the crucifixion. Of course, the crucifixion just happened. It was history, recent history, current events. 
But the resurrection proved that Jesus indeed was the Messiah, was God himself, and was such a powerful thing. That was the issue that they had such trouble with. For us, the resurrection is central. It is where we have our hope that one day, as Scripture witnesses throughout the New Testament, we too will have a bodily resurrection following Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead. And uh, again, 1 Corinthians 15, we were there at Easter. Uh, that's what 1 Corinthians 15, there was a group in that church who denied the bodily resurrection of the believer. And look at this passage from there that, that Paul says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And so we too as believers need to hold fast that central tenet of Christianity, the the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also the hope of our own resurrection. The two are connected, as Paul reminds us here. Secondly, that was a, a theological application. There's also a great practical application in this part of the passage, and that is this. We should respect, it's hard sometimes, we should respect the offices that God commands us to respect in Scripture regardless of the person holding it, and that's hard to do. It's true here in the church, uh, regardless of how Robert and I perform, even if we mess up, even if you have reason to disrespect us, respect the office of pastor with fear for the judgment of God. It's also true in the political sphere. Uh, Romans 13 makes it very clear. Uh, so does First Peter. We need to respect uh, the leaders that God gives us in the political realm, regardless of whether we respect the person. I'll be honest, I haven't been a big fan of the past several presidents. But that doesn't matter. I need to respect, I need to pray for, I need to submit to the leaders God puts over us. It glorifies God when we do that. And Paul gives us a great example here. Again, one of the, probably the most evil high priest ever. And yet he acknowledges his fault uh, in not doing that before God. So great uh, reminder for us as well. So we've seen Paul's innocence through his own speech. Now in just one verse, we're going to see him declared innocent through Jesus' words as Jesus appears to him in a vision. Now first, let me let, ask you a question. Have you ever worked for someone where they would send you out on a, on a task, on a, an assignment, but not really tell you that much about it, and then you get there and you're like, come on, man, why didn't you tell me I was getting ready to walk into this? Isn't it great to get a heads up in, in work or even in a family context? One example I, I thought of, too, is uh, how about the, the teachers or professors we've had who would tell us what was on the test? Isn't that great? When you find out what's on the test. I remember being in high school. I could have been daydreaming, flicking staples, doodling. But when I heard the teacher say those words, now let's look at what's on the test. Boy, I got my pen out. I wanted to find out. And we all had the teachers who didn't tell us, and we got a huge shock and surprise. And uh, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's so faithful. To Paul in this example today, because what, uh, what Paul's been doing is he's been writing on the promises of God. God appeared to him in some regard through the Spirit. We saw it in chapter 19, chapter 20, to let him know what was coming, that he was going to go to Jerusalem and testify before the Jews. And so that we saw that carry Paul the last couple weeks as he was going from church to church, and they were trying to get him not to go, and he kept going. We saw it last week as he's arrested, was being beaten to death, almost killed. But that time now has, has, is over. He's done the, that thing. He's come to Jerusalem. He's testified. And so what is next? And look with me at verse 11. 
as we see it here. The following night, the Lord stood by him. A lot of symbolism there. The Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Isn't God so good? He comes to Paul. I mean, we, I think sometimes we, we think Paul was like Superman, right? That he just kind of appeared one day. And just incredible giant of a figure that we all love and adore. But he was human too. And he has been in Jerusalem now for days, and he's almost been killed three times. There comes a point where you get discouraged. You get weak. I know that we can all relate with that, but even Paul had to be struggling in his faith at this point. But look how the Lord comes to him. I love it. The Lord stood by him right there. The Lord is approving of Paul's innocence. The judge of the universe, forget the Sanhedrin, the judge of the universe stood by him. He didn't have to say a word, and I promise you Paul would have been encouraged. But he does say a few words. Look what he says to him. Take courage. Take courage. Uh, that, uh, those words there in the Greek, Jesus said those several times to his disciples uh, in the Gospels. Usually it appears as take heart. Uh, he said it to the apostles. Remember when they're in the boat and the, the waves are kind of taking them out a little bit, and all of a sudden they see a, what they thought was a ghost walking on the water? And it was Jesus. He said, take heart. It's me. Here's another passage from uh, John 16. Again, right after the Lord's Supper, right before his arrest. I have said these things to you, talking to the 11, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. There it is. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And He's reminding Paul of that here in the midst of the storm. Take courage. I'm not done with you yet, Paul. You've done my will here in Jerusalem. The key word, testify. You've testified to the facts here, but I have another job for you. You need to testify in Rome. Now, it's going to be a couple years before he gets to Rome. So this promise will encourage him for over two years. And F.F. Bruce uh, explains that here on this slide. He says, this assurance meant much to Paul during the delays and anxieties of the next two years, and goes far to account for the calm and dignified bearing which seemed to mark him out as a master of events rather than a victim. God is so faithful in keeping his promises to us, just as we see here for Paul. Again, great application for us. We too, I, I, I thought this week of the, the hymn, Standing on the Promises of God. Standing on the promises of God. He didn't have to do this for Paul. He was so faithful. And God has given us promises as well to stand on, uh, to, to remember. And on a practical level, this is why we continually encourage those of you who are believers to find time each day to be in God's Word. That's a very practical reason for daily Bible intake. Even a few moments, even a few verses to be reminded on a fresh daily basis of these promises we hold to. Maybe you don't need it. I do. I need these promises every day. We all struggle. We all have things going in our life. And if I don't take time to be reminded, man, I'm going to be in a tailspin. These promises are great. The promises of Jesus. And I don't just mean the red letters. Again, if you have a red letter Bible, that's okay. But you have to understand the black letters are equally God's word as the red letters. 
They're all Jesus' words, and they're all meant to strengthen our faith, to help us uh, not lose hope when the storms of life come, when, when things like this happen. So find time each day. Again, legalism, we hate legalism. But still, there's so much purpose why we need God's word. We need prayer. We need daily worship. Sing the promises. There's nothing great. We do it here on Sunday mornings. But we need to be doing it all other six days, too, because it's so refreshing and so strengthening of us as we're going through the hard times and facing the challenges. So let's stand on the promises of God. The second thing here is just the, the, the imagery of the Lord stood by him. Again, for those of you who are in Christ, that reality is true. There's never a time you're not in the presence of God. The Holy Spirit comes to live within those of us who are saved. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is always standing by us, whether we can feel him or not. That's where faith comes in. That's where the Word of God comes in, that we follow truth and not feelings. And we know that he is with us even when it doesn't feel like it, even when the worst possible things are happening. We need to remember in those times most of all that he's standing right next to us. I doubt many of us will ever experience a vision like this. Maybe. The reality is we don't need it because we have the Word of God and we have the Spirit of God in us. And then finally, just a reminder, there's one last prophecy concerning Jesus Christ that has not yet been fulfilled. He's fulfilled over a hundred of them that are given to us in Scripture except one. What is that one? His second coming. He's coming back. Look at John 14, this great chapter. Look what he tells the apostles there. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I, would I, not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. What a great, faithful God we have. That's what's coming, friends. It could happen at any time. There's nothing that still has to happen for Jesus to return. He allows time to go on because he's continuing to save his children, but when that last one is rescued, he returns, and we go home. Praise God. And, and just, again, on a practical level, remember that promise. That's what Paul's always telling us in his letters. That's what we see him doing in the book of Acts. Jesus is coming back. He keeps his eye on the finish line and has that strength each day from the vertical proof. So we've seen, we've seen two of these um, descriptions of Paul's innocence. And the final one comes to us in the Tribune's letter, as he writes a letter to, the governor, uh, to Governor Felix, who is in charge of Judea. And so we're going to pick up in verse 12 and just read through to 15 here. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made the, this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you along with the council give notice to the tribune to bring him down to, to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So here's this plot. Now, these 40 Jews are probably more associated with the mob riot than the Sanhedrin. But you see, they go to the Sadducees, who they know would be in with them and be agreeable to this, and they tell them the plan. The word oath there is a very strong word in the Greek. You've probably heard it before, anathema. 
the word anathema, so it's a curse. They're calling down a curse upon themselves if they fail to kill Paul. In fact, they're, they're promising never to eat or, or drink until they do this. So I, don't, I guess they would have died of thirst or hunger, right? Because they didn't kill Paul. But actually, I'm sure uh, they broke that once that opportunity became impossible. But nonetheless, we see their plan. And then if you look at verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. Have you ever had a friend that you knew for a long time? Maybe you went to school with them. I mean, you've known this person for years. You thought you were best buddies. And then, like, one day you, you see their sister come over, or brother, and you're like, you got a sister? You got a brother? I never knew that. You never told me about that. That's how I feel when I read this. This is the only mention we have of any of Paul's family. Again, I just, in my mind, think Paul just appeared one day, right? But he had a family. He had a sister who obviously lived in Jerusalem and a nephew uh, who, who uh, by God's grace and God's sovereignty, found out about the plan and was able to alert Paul and the tribune of what the Jews had in mind, that they again wanted to kill Paul. Uh, some scholars think that Paul probably moved to Jerusalem at a very young age when he himself was young, again, to be raised in the tradition of a Pharisee. And so it would make sense that he had other family members living there as well. This is the word for, la- it's translated sometimes lad in some of the translations, and it usually is used of a, of a child from 8 to 14. So his nephew would have been 8 to 14 years old. And then picking up in uh, verse 26 of, uh, of chapter, actually verse 23, uh, the tribune obviously is concerned. And so for the fourth time, we see God use this man to rescue Paul from certain death. And in verse 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to take Paul to Caesarea, to Felix the governor. Now, there's only a 1,000 troops in the cohort in Jerusalem. So half, almost half of the cohort is going to go with Paul to protect him from their plans. Now, uh, Felix, you'll get to know him more next week. Robert's going to preach next week in chapter 24. You'll see Paul's trial before the governor, Felix. But just a few words about this man. He uh, had served already for quite a few years. What's really interesting about Felix is he used to be a slave in the Roman Empire. He was a slave, apparently, in the imperial household. Uh, and now we see him at the second highest level within Roman society, the equestrian level. That's unheard of. That is unheard of. But he apparently had a brother named Paulus who served in the court of the emperor. He was a favorite of both Emperor Claudius and Emperor Nero. And so he, you know, Felix had a good hookup with his brother. And after King Herod died, he becomes the governor in charge of Judea. Another important piece of history that might be meaningless to half of you, but some of us find this interesting. Felix was married to the granddaughter of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. So interesting. But he was a brutal man. And for the sake of uh, our study of Acts, he would come in anytime there was any type of insurrection in Jerusalem or uprising from the Jewish zealots, he would come in and stomp it out brutally. I mean, brutally shed Jewish blood without hesitation. He was a very violent man, very corrupt himself, and his actions were the catalyst for the growing tension between the Roman Empire and the Jews, which will eventually erupt into the Jewish wars in 70 AD, bringing the destruction of Jerusalem. But So that's a little bit about Felix. Again, you'll get to know him more next week. But Paul will be taken to him. Uh, if you turn there to the end, you'll see uh, they leave at 9 o'clock at night. Talk about uh, sneaking out. So 
without the Jews noticing. So at 9 p.m., this group of almost 500 people, soldiers, take Paul. Uh, they arrive at Antipatris. This was a, a fortress about halfway between Jerusalem and Caesarea on the coast. Then they finally arrive at Caesarea. But what I want us to see real quickly is in verse 29, and this is the letter that the tribune, we have his name now, Claudius. Claudius writes to Felix, and you'll see in verse 29, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. So right there in the letter, once again, we'll see this again many times, the Roman Empire sees Christianity and and Paul as the chief representative as innocent, of doing nothing wrong, a legitimate religion as far as we are concerned. So our great investigative uh, detective, the tribune Claudius, finally gets his answer. After four attempts, he finally hears that some dispute within the religion, but nothing deserving death. Paul is innocent. And so that was the reason for getting him out of harm's way and getting him to the governor who had the right to try his case as a Roman citizen. So again, a few application points for us, and then we'll be finished. The main point of today's sermon, freedom. We have freedom in Christ. Not freedom to sin, but freedom in Christ. We have been freed. We are innocent because of the blood of Christ. Remind yourselves of that, especially after you sin. The reality is we're still in the flesh, so we all still blow it each day. Again, we never want to presume upon the grace of God and go sin on purpose. But when we do sin, we come to the throne of grace asking forgiveness. Stand up from that time of repentance as if it never happened. Whatever it is that you just did, as if it never happened. You and I are innocent. That's the beauty of the cross. That's why it's grace. That's why it's mercy. That's why it's so wonderful. Again, we never presume upon it or take it for granted. But indeed... Celebrate it. Celebrate it. Because what happens, I don't know if you're anything like me, probably in this regard, but when I do mess up and I feel guilty, my guilt continues to fuel the sin to repeat itself. But when I take faith in grace and I rise from my knees as if it never happened, it's amazing how much freedom you'll have from temptation and from the power of sin. Second thing to remind you of as we uh, in this passage is, is this reality. God is sovereign. Isn't it amazing that these 40 men, had, and they would have been successful. The tribune would have had no problem calling another council meeting, and a few soldiers would have been bringing them down, and they would have ambushed and killed Paul. But listen, as uh, John Stott reminds us here on the slide, even the most careful and cunning human plans cannot succeed if God opposes them. God is in control. When our number's up, our number's up. He's determined that day, but never before then. He can even find out the, the most cunning human plan. And there's that great reminder, often taken out of context, but fits well here from Isaiah 54. For the servant of God, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, because God is ultimately in charge. And then finally, I want to just uh, let you know we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper here in a few moments. And How fitting, as we've seen and been reminded of the innocence of those who are in Christ, we're going to celebrate and partake in the gospel now. And if you're with us and you're not sure of where you are uh, in terms of being a Christian, uh, as we're worshiping God in this way, allow the truths and the symbolism of the bread and the juice to penetrate your heart and be a witness of the reality of Christianity and our, our plea 
with you is won't you repent and believe? Let go of whatever it is you're holding to and come and follow Christ with us. Uh, again, we'll be transitioning to the Lord's Supper here, but we're available this morning to have that conversation. Find me, find Robert, call us, text us this week. We want to share the gospel with you. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then uh, Robert's going to come up, and he's going to lead us in the time of the Lord's Supper. Father, we do thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for this reminder of our innocence as those who are in Christ, because not of what we've done, but because of what you've done in freeing us from slavery to sin and death. We are now free indeed. We are innocent of all guilt and all sin because of the blood of Jesus Christ, the greatest gift ever. We can't earn this. We can never earn it. It is a gift of your grace. And Father, if there's one person in here who's still pushing back that grace, Father, let them let go. Let them surrender. Let them turn from their sin and believe in you, the gospel of grace, Father. And for those of us who are Christians, let us daily be reminded from your word the truths, the promises that you've given to us, that we can hold to them even in the darkest of times and remember you are sovereign and you love us and you're standing right there next to us despite what we're facing. Lord, encourage us and let us be encouragers of others and let us be faithful in taking this gospel that has saved us to the nations, both here and around the world, that we would share with those who are perishing in our circles. Be with us now as we continue this worship service in one of the most wonderful ways by partaking of your glorious body. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.